just millions of dollars were being sent to fake farms, people who had just created a non-entity. And lenders, because of the way the Paycheck Protection Program was created, had no incentive to dig into this any further. They just issued the payments. Uh, and it's and it's an open mystery. Law enforcement prosecutors are going to be chasing down hundreds of, you know, if not thousands of leads of people who defrauded that program because it was so loosely regulated. Welcome to another episode of Grit Nation. I'm Joe Gadwell, the host of the show, and today I'll be talking with investigative reporter David McSwain about his new book, Pandemic Inc., Chasing the Capitalist and the Thieves Who Got Rich While We Got Sick. David's book is an explosive look inside the rush to profit from the COVID-19 pandemic and connects the dots between shady backdoor deals and a robust spoil system that led to a catastrophic mishandling of the pandemic. Pandemic Inc. is a brilliant nonfiction thriller that takes us behind the scenes to reveal how traders, contractors, and healthcare companies used one of the darkest moments in American history to fill their pockets. During our conversation, David will introduce us to a host of characters he met while writing his book. From the fraudster who signed a million-dollar contract with the government to provide life-saving PPE and yet came up with not even a single mask, to the Navy Admiral at the helm of the National Hunt for Medical Supplies. David's roller coaster of a story takes us inside private jets and dirty warehouses as he seeks to expose the stranger-than-fiction criminal enterprise that played out in real time right before our very eyes. To learn more about David and his work, be sure to check out the show notes or visit the Grit Nation website at gritnationpodcast.com. And now on to the show. David McSwain, welcome to Grit Nation. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you so much, David, for taking your time to be on my show today. I'm really excited to uh, to talk with you and to introduce you and the uh, uh, the book that you've just written, Pandemic Inc., to my listeners. And uh, David. You, you've got a you know uh, just a, a ton of awards behind you uh, as an investigative journalist. You've seen a lot. You've written a lot. What inspired you to get into kind of talking about something that we all collectively have lived through the last two years? Why did you write Pandemic Inc.? Well, I didn't actually set out to write a book. Uh, I, like every reporter in the world, as COVID hit, was trying to find my place in the coverage. You know, it's hopefully the largest story of, of our careers. And, and I was new here in Washington, D.C., new to ProPublica. It's a new office we built out here. And, um, you know, I was looking early on at, you know, following some of the data that tracked deaths, and I worked on some of that stuff. And as soon as the Trump administration decided to try to catch up to the virus, it, its solution appeared to be to throw you know, hundreds of millions and eventually billions of dollars uh, at contractors for things like masks and gloves. And right away, I, I knew that this is something that people could take advantage of. So I just started following the money, looking at who was being paid, digging into their backgrounds, following up. And um, before you know it, you know, I, I found quite a few interesting stories, which I, I ended up detailing in the book. But as a result of that series of reporting, uh, that's when interest for for a book 
came to be, you know, over the summer of 2020. And having read your book and, and being thoroughly uh, enlightened and entertained by it, because it really was a fun read, uh, you had a whole host of characters that you kind of were introduced to. And I think, you know, starting off, you started off on a jet plane that was was heading out on this uh, sort of Hail Mary mission to, to acquire 6.5 million masks for the Veterans Administration. And how did you get on that jet? Let's start there. Yeah, so like I said, I just started digging into the contractors that were being hired by the federal government. I My eyes were drawn to the Veterans Administration because they oversee the largest hospital network in the U.S., and doctors and nurses were fashioning their own protective equipment, and you know we were just hearing horror stories. So it was clear that they needed supplies. And just looking at the contracts, it looked like they were panic buying. And they, you know, their biggest contractor at the time, a guy named Robert Stewart Jr., uh, had a little company called Federal Government Experts. And uh, he had a $34.5 million deal for $6 million of the N95 respirators. And he had no background in medical supplies. It was his first ever federal government contract. So, you know, his, his website had, had large passages plagiarized. They were just sort of alarm bells. So I just decided to call him and ask how he got these masks and you know, and he's adamant. He relays to me that I, you know, I'm the real deal. I'm hopping on a private jet in the morning. I'm going to oversee the delivery of these masks. It's going to be, it's going to be amazing. And I said, that is amazing. Would you mind if I tag along? And a few hours later, I'm I'm aboard a private jet to Chicago by way of Columbus, Georgia, uh, to pick up his parents for some reason. And over the course of about 36 hours, just realized his story was falling apart. He said he had masks, and they were gone. Somebody bought them. But he introduced me to this weird underworld of mask brokers and investors and people who are all trying to get, uh, you know, a little piece of the action, get rich, you know, behind these government contracts and our desperation. And that set me off on about a year and a half of reporting, just ending up in really absurd situations such as that. Right. And and so going back to, to Robert Stewart, do you think he was nefarious? Do you think he went out with the intent of defrauding the, uh, the the Veterans Administration? Or is this something he just sort of stumbled into, wanted to be an entrepreneur, sort of wanted to be, I, I, I seem to remember in your book, he wanted to be a good patriot. He was very defensive of not about not being perceived as what he called a, a pirate or a buccaneer or even a mercenary, you know, and, and uh, right. um, being a parasite on the system. But in the end, it sort of, he sort of ended up that way, didn't he? Yeah, I mean, that was my question from the outset was, you know, is, is this guy being, you know, is he maliciously trying to get rich off of our desperate moment or is he just over his skis? You know, did he just take this a little bit too far? And that really becomes a central tension in the book. Uh, it seemed to me that he was struggling with that question of, you know, is he the vaunted American entrepreneur that we really idealize in this country, you know, rising to his occasion or... Was he, in fact, a buccaneer, you know, slash pirate that he so decried? And, you know, in the end, he, he is charged with three federal crimes. And, and we find out that, you know, he had committed a federal crime before my eyes. Right. And, and you know, but this fellow here uh, didn't quite have a track record. And later on, I hope we'll get into the uh, the Phila Kit and the Paul Wexler, who seemed to have, you know, mm-hmm. a, a history of getting in himself into some dubious sort of endeavors. But, uh, you know, I was really taken by this, this Robert Stewart's 
case that you opened your book with that it, it just seemed like it was someone that had an idealistic vision and maybe got uh, right. again like you said over his skis a little bit and before too long he found himself in deep water and and uh you know he's on a private jet to go to chicago where i think it was en route he opened up to you and said he didn't even have access to the mask and you and you think you replied like well why are we going to chicago <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And his response was, well, it's a it's a faith thing. And he, he held up his devotional Bible and, uh, you know, I received a proper Christian education. So I, I understood where he was headed with this. But it seemed like an awful lot to hinge on faith. And, you know, I really wondered, you know, is this guy just making it up as he goes along? Is this a performance for me? Uh, because he knows I'm writing a story. And, uh, you know, those are sort of open questions. And I try to keep an open mind and, and just see where characters take me. And, um, you know, he kept saying the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And he kept referencing, well, people are going to prison. And the more he talked about this, the more I began to wonder, you know, am I his confessor? You know, does he feel guilty about something he's doing? And is this his way of coping with that? And. Uh, you know, towards the end of the book, I, I describe, you know, a scene where he, he kind of has to face the music. And, uh, you know, we, we didn't know where, where it was headed in April 2020. But, you know, now now we've had a chance to catch up to this and, and people are having to, um, you know, pay the consequences for their actions. For sure. So let's talk now a little bit about the national stockpile and why we found ourselves at sort of the mercy of these entrepreneurs, if you will, like Robert Stewart and, and Paul Wexler. And and how, as a nation, did we find ourselves in this position, do you think, David? Yeah, we had this sort of perfect storm of being woefully ill-prepared, uh, just institutionally. And then you add to that the Trump administration, which was really reluctant to acknowledge the pandemic in those early weeks. By the time COVID hit, we had something like 1% of what we needed in terms of masks and gloves and gowns and so forth in the strategic national stockpile, which is supposed to be deployed, you know, to, to handle crises across the country very rapidly. Crises like Hurricane Katrina or Hurricane Sandy or something of that nature, but which are geographically specific in the U.S., but this was all 50 states were being affected at the same time. Right. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, this network of warehouses is designed to respond locally. So you're not waiting for things to come out of Washington. Um, so it, it, it was originally envisioned to respond to bioterrorism uh, attacks. And, and slowly it was actually the George W. Bush administration that first really realized and put money behind, uh, you know, the threat of, of an influenza pandemic. Um, but because of just political bickering and the rise of the Tea Party and their fight against anything the Obama administration had to do, they'd forced cuts uh, really across uh, the federal government. And Democrats were forced to sort of, you know, spread the pain and figure out where to make cuts. And the strategic national stockpile was a victim of that. So we, you know, just sort of our politics and not taking warnings seriously, we had very clear evidence that this was a problem, that a pandemic was inevitable, that we're going to need these masks, that states are going to be competing with each other. We really just didn't heed those warnings. So we found ourselves ill-prepared. And it seems like, again, at 1%, woefully underprepared. Did our, does yeah. our national stockpile, or do you know, David, does that rely on Amer American manufacturing uh, of these products, uh, the 
the, the mask and that, or is it a supply chain issue where we're being shut down overseas and that's why we couldn't replenish our supplies quickly, quickly enough? Uh, yeah, so there's a lot in the strategic national stockpile. Uh, about half of its budget over the years had been sunk into anthrax treatments, which haven't actually been deployed. Uh, so that put a strain on the stockpile itself. But at the same time, mask manufacturing had been shipped out to places like China and even Mexico for cheaper labor and production costs. And, it, you know, in fact, I, I detail in the book a guy named Mike Bowen who runs an American, uh, you know, a, a USA-made mask factory down near Dallas, Texas. He'd been warning for 13 years if we're hit with a pandemic, we're going to be reliant on China. They're going to choke off supply and Americans are needlessly going to die. And he'd been trying to get the stockpile to really invest in domestic manufacturing. And, and we did it. I thought that was a really interesting part of the book, too, that Mike Bowen had the, the vision for so long and worked so hard and actually had factories that if they'd uh, what is it called? The, uh, the National Defense Act. Is it that the President Trump could have used at that time to reboot some of these factories? Could have got that up and, and running? Yeah, the Defense Production Act. Um, yeah, the Defense Production yeah. Act. And there is Mike Bowen, and he's meeting with, I think in your book, you said uh, uh, Peter Navarro. And they said mm -hmm. it looked like there was a little bit of a clash of personalities. And Peter Navarro, who is another one of these very interesting characters that hopefully you can uh, elaborate on a little bit, and his play in, the, in, in all of this, uh, sort of had some misgivings about Mike Bowen and, and was not able to reboot this, this American production of, of essential equipment for our, our hospitals and, and citizens. Yeah. And Mike Bowen and his company, Prestige Ameritech had, uh, you know, they rose to the occasion during H1N1, the swine flu epidemic in 2009, 2010. But when the, when the virus ebbed, so too did the business. So he, his company had hired something like 150 employees and fired up all these machines. And then when that business went away, they had to fire all of those people and shut down the machines that nearly put them into bankruptcy. So he was trying to say to the federal government, I have these machines that can make N95s. We can have domestically made masks. I can get you millions and millions of masks, but I need to know that we have a deal that makes business sense. We, this needs to be an investment. I don't want to hire and fire people and end up in bankruptcy. And at the same time, Peter Navarro, who is, you know, kind of a brusque guy, he's a real character. Everyone in Washington has an opinion about him. He wanted the brass tax. He wanted to know how many masks for set price. And, and he just didn't want to deal with that. So they were kind of talking past each other. So at the same time, the deal with Bowen falls apart. Peter Navarro, uh, it really does something remarkable. He, he inserts himself into federal purchasing, which is pretty historically significant. So you have the White House ordering contracts, picking winners and losers, uh, of which Prestige Ameritech really wasn't one. And uh, our national response effectively becomes to just throw money at mercenaries, people who claim they have things now on the ground and can deliver them, many of whom were scammers and fraudsters and, and liars. And Peter Navarro, for those who don't know, uh, at the time was the economic advisor on the Trump administration. And sort of, again, was one of those personalities that really wanted to see things done quickly and cut through a lot of the uh, uh, bureaucracy in, in order to try to make uh, to happen. And, and I know, um, you know a lot of people have strong feelings about Peter Navarro one way or the other, but it does seem like that fella at that time 
point in time in history was was really trying to make something happen, but unfortunately, some of his efforts were not well received. Yeah, and I, I began to see him. I mean, he's a fascinating person, just as a writer, you know, looking at, at, at the characters. But he he sort of got in his own way. You know, he he was one of the first in the Trump administration to acknowledge the threat and was trying to do things, but. His willingness to break rules and convention and push for things like hydroxychloroquine uh, when the science isn't there to back that up really undermined his message and that of the larger Trump administration in general. So he he nearly became something of a hero in this story, but he does kind of get in his own way. And, and, you know, that's why I wanted to include him. He's a bit of a nuanced character. Right. And speaking of other characters, I mean, you know, it starts off at the the, the top with uh, former President uh, Donald Trump and his son-in-law, Jared Kushner. And I, again, referring back to your book, uh, uh, some of the folks that he brought in from private industry to try to help out with the initial efforts uh, didn't go over so well. And I think uh, one of the players in your in your uh, book called them the Kushner Kids. Can you tell us a little bit more about Jared Kushner's involvement and the Kushner Kids? Right. Yeah, I spent uh, some time talking with former uh, Navy Rear Admiral John Polovchik, who he's essentially the adult in the room. He's called in a little bit too late to figure out the supply chain because he was an expert on supply chains. And, you know, he starts he tells the White House, no, this is this isn't right. we got to do this out of FEMA. We can't be doing this from our cell phones at the White House. And, you know, he's pretty instantly struck by Kushner's plan to build this shadow task force of people he knows from his business networks, well-to-do people from places like Google and Goldman Sachs or whatever. And Palafchik comes into FEMA and realizes there's a bunch of young civilians running around who are somehow in the middle of the pandemic response. And he's confused by that. And he tries to sideline them essentially to reviewing the just countless offers that are coming in from these mercenaries, these contractors who want a piece of the action. Uh, and, you know, for his part, he says it really just created a public relations distraction. You know, the, the perception that Kushner was in charge of where supplies were going really overshadowed a lot of the work he was trying to do. Uh, but at the same time, there are clear examples where the Kushner kids, you know, got in the way. For instance, they based on a, a tweet at President Donald Trump from a man who claimed to have ventilators, they referred him to the state of New York. The state of New York assumed, well, oh, FEMA must have vetted this guy. Let's give him a contract. And uh, long story short, that contractor got, I think it was a $90 million deal, collected about two-thirds of that and never delivered ventilators. So now you know, they're having to sue to recoup that money. So it, it really just added... Uh, stress to the system at a really critical time. And and not only that, it wasted a lot of time. I mean, again, life-saving equipment was being needed all across the country. And, you know, people are being sent down these rabbit holes and wild goose chases. And, and it doesn't seem like they added, had much uh, value add to the, to the situation. Again, trying to get back money. So you said yeah. $90 million there. I know that uh, Robert Stewart, who we talked about with the, the and 95 Mass was given a contract of $34.5 million. Did these people actually receive all of this money? And if so, what what happened to that money? Uh, some did, some didn't. So in the case of Robert Stewart Jr., the, the private jet guy that I spent time with, he didn't receive the money because 
the federal government typically only pays upon acceptance of a product. Uh, it's rare to, to put the money down first. And this data, in the, in the case of the New York ventilator issue, that person was actually paid up front because states and cities were desperate and they weren't getting help from the federal government. So they were willing, and this is extraordinary, to pay up front and sort of deal with the consequences later. So it's a bit of a mixed bag. The federal government's defense of that is, well, you know, we didn't we didn't pay out unless something was delivered. So no harm, no foul. But that's not really that that's not an honest answer, really, because what they did was they signaled to this emerging black market. We're willing to pay Robert Stewart Jr. nearly six dollars a mask for a mask that used to cost a dollar. And that had these mercenaries, these buccaneers and pirates flocking around this contract. And you have people trying to, you know, you get these broker chains that emerge. I know a guy who knows a guy and everyone's trying to get a piece. They're negotiating their own deal. And they're, and that's driving up prices. And that makes it worse for states and cities and hospitals uh, who are all competing against one another for the same supply. So it's it wasn't a harmless thing to do. Uh, and it and it really created a lot of chaos. Uh, you mentioned, and, and we'll probably get into this in a bit, uh, the company Filikit, which you know was contracted for test tubes. That's an example of a company that was paid because the federal government did accept the product, even though it, it you know was useless. This episode of Grit Nation is proudly supported by the Carpenters Local 271, based in Eugene, Oregon. Thanks to their generosity, the hardworking men and women of the Local 271 can now sport an official "I've Got Grit" high visibility T-shirt. This U.S.-made garment is produced by Image Point of Waterloo, Iowa, and features the American flag and the newly designed Grit Nation logo. I have to say it looks really sharp, and I'm pleased as punch to have their support. If your local, business, or organization is interested in collaborating with Grit Nation, the Building Trades podcast, I'd be happy to hear from you. Grit Nation is proud to support those who support the blue-collar trades people of America and Canada. And now back to the show. Yeah, and, and since we're talking about that, that was Paul Wexler, and uh, you had an interesting story when you went to visit his warehouse site. Yeah, so Filikit was a company that formed in late April or early May, and six days later got a $10 million deal with the Federal Emergency Management Agency for, for COVID-19 test kits. And these are the PCR tests. They require a little bit of science. And we looked into the company. The company had no background in medical supply whatsoever. So we questioned that they that they could, you know, provide these test kits, uh, which were new. You know, this was novel stuff. And dug into the ownership and found that the owner, Paul Wexler, had a history of fraud allegations, including, you know, telemarketing uh, and, and robocall scams alleged by the Federal Trade Commission, which was su- had sued him. So we had reason to be suspicious and we threw it into a larger story, just about something like a billion dollars had gone to first time contractors in the first two months of the pandemic. And we call this priming the pump and investigative reporting. You don't always have all the answers, but if you can put a little bit out there, maybe someone will answer them for you. And we did that. And I get a call uh, from a state public health official who says, hey, I read your story. I have these test tubes. They were sent to me, and I'm mind blown. I don't know what they are. They're completely unusable. Um, they're too big for lab- laboratory equipment. They're not sterile. They're just thrown in a bag. You know, these are supposed to be hermetically Zip-lock sealed. bags. Right. Yeah, exactly. So he's dumbfounded. He shares with a colleague th- these test tubes, and his colleague recognizes right away they're, they're actually mini soda bottle preforms, which 
you know, are blown up with heat and pressure to become your two liter soda bottles at the grocery store. So we find this out. I happen to be in Texas uh, chasing down an unrelated scam and we realized their warehouse is outside of Houston. So, you know, I decided to go over. Uh, they wouldn't let me through the front door, you know, got mad at me. So I kind of pulled around the corner and just staked the place out and an enterprise rental truck comes up. I realized that something's about to happen. The large garage door opens up and, and I walk up with my, you know, cell phone camera on. I accidentally shut it upside down. I'm taking notes. And, uh, I can see they have employees using literal snow shovels to gather up these soda bottles from large bins to put them into smaller bins. And you had workers just squirting saline and screwing them on and throwing them in another bin. Some of them are wearing masks. Some aren't. There's giant industrial fans whipping air around. So these are likely completely unsanitary uh, and really problematic. And, you know, they, they have, you know, the owner got really mad at me and screamed at me, but I had everything I needed. And when I reported that back to FEMA, FEMA confirmed that they had delivered those test tubes to all 50 states and territories. And these were those crucial, crucial weeks when we needed to catch up on testing so that we could be proactive against the virus. FEMA had to tell all 50 states and territories not to use those test kits. So it really cost us time when time meant American lives. And that was $10 million that FEMA doled out. And and let's back up just a bit, David. You said you did some investigative yeah. digging to find out that this fellow had, uh, you know, kind of a track record of some nefarious deeds. How much digging did you have to do to find that? And why didn't FEMA dig where you dug? <laughs> Very little. Uh, it, you know, it didn't take the vast resources of the federal government to find these things. A quick Google search showed us a few things. We dug into court records, you know, we do a basic scrub, we call it, on every business that we look into. And, you know, right away, just looking at the Secretary of State filings, which every company has to file in their home state, we could see that they formed on one day and then six days later, they had a $10 million deal. That indicates to me this company was formed specifically to get federal money uh, as part of the COVID response. And, and as I said, because FEMA accepted those test kits, Contract officers we talked to, or contract experts, I should say, uh, said it's really hard to make the case that the company has to pay it back because the federal government paid for something. They said, okay, this is fine. Uh, so that company got away with it. Incredible. So so again, just to recap that, the beginning of the week, I plop down 100 bucks. I open up an LLC. I get a business license. I send out an email or two. And by the end of the week, I'm looking at a $10 million contract from from FEMA. That about Pretty right? amazing return on investment, right? <laughs> no kidding. And again, yeah. where was the vetting? Why did uh, I, I understand the concept? We're in a we're in a panic mode, and um, you know, but there needs to be some level of accountability, and it doesn't seem like there was any federal oversight uh, to to any of this. No, it, I mean, it, it was always going to be messy, right? Because this is emergency spending time, um, but the these contract officers who are used to buying paper clips and chairs and, and things like that are suddenly arbiters of life-saving equipment. They're on a front line of their own and they're under tremendous pressure to find these things because we don't have them because we didn't prepare. Uh, so I, I have some empathy for the, for those folks, but at the same time, 
it didn't take much to figure out that these these are probably characters we shouldn't be going into business with in our time of need. Right. Absolutely not. And um, <clears throat> yeah, it still just blows me away. And again, and uh, money aside, it's people's lives uh, and reputations. I mean, we've taken some uh, some organizations like FEMA. Everyone, you know, would under respect FEMA. Uh, before this uh, would happen, I'm sure right. their their um, reputation has been tarnished a little bit. The CDC obviously has been beaten up a little bit as well. And this whole process right. just created this chaotic system when the Fed sort of backed away. And I, I think there was a quote in your book say that uh, Jared Kushner, again, going back to Jared, uh, said, you know, this is our stockpile. This is the federal stockpile. We're going to hold on to this. And mask and life-saving equipment is somewhat of a political football, didn't it? Yeah, and what, what he said was just not true. The, the entire conceit of the stockpile was that the federal government could back up states. It was meant to be deployed regionally. So his notion that it's our stockpile uh, made it inherently political. And, and that just worsened everything. And that sped up. You know, you saw states like California, get, you know, Gavin Newsom, governor there, uh, cutting deals with China directly. You know, and he got a lot of flack for that at the time. But like looking back, I'm like that wasn't the worst idea. <laughs> you know, the federal government was getting in the way. It, you know, it was it became winner take all. And it really was. And you had a chapter in there. Uh, it seems like it turned into an eBay effect where states were bidding against states. And, and this is fairly recent history. I remember this myself and going incredible. You know that the that the sort of price war, bidding war for life saving equipment is is playing out in real time, and people are dying. Proof of life. Uh, I, I'd like to talk to you about that. I, I, I read that. I heard it. I listened to you on another podcast or two. Uh, proof of life came up a number of times. What is what is the term proof of life when it comes to life-saving equipment in unprecedented times, David? Yeah. So I first heard about this on that private jet with Robert Stewart Jr. And he said, you know, I'm about to get a proof of life. And I, I just thought instantly of a hostage movie or something. Um, but what these were is grainy cell phone video sort of panning over what you call a lot of masks, a bunch of boxes on a pallet. Uh, the boxes usually said 3M or something. Occasionally someone would hold up a newspaper to prove that, you know, this was a recent video or a document with someone's name on it to prove that, you know, this is for this particular buyer. And these would be sent through this network of brokers and this sort of daisy chain. And the idea was, well, if you sound, if you send proof of life, these videos and a proof of funds, such as a federal contract or a bank statement, uh, you know, we can do business. And this is all done on WhatsApp, you know, encrypted apps. And there were some people who, who were wiring money based on very little else. And because this market had just been inflamed, this bonanza because of the federal government's, you know, mentality of just throwing money out wherever. These became like central parlance for deals that the federal government had cut. Uh, so th these were the shenanigans behind every major contract to get us life-saving supplies for our doctors and nurses and, and everybody else. And ultimately, do you think, you know, we've, you've highlighted in your book, again, Pandemic Inc., chasing the capitalists and thieves who got rich while we got sick. You, you know, you've, you've 
I don't want to say cherry pick, but you've got some pretty ripe and extreme examples of people that have done bad things at the expense of the American taxpayers' uh, health and well-being. But do you think that was the norm, or do you think that there were a lot of positive sides to to the response, either on the city, state, or even federal level, that that we can shine a positive light on? Or do you think it was a big mess? It was a big mess, uh, but certainly in every story, there are your heroes and and uh, the nurses and doctors really rose to the occasion. Uh, the city of New York, I detail in there, while they, you know, they gave some contracts out that they probably regret, they really did mobilize to try to help, you know, back up hospitals during those really terrifying months when we're, you know, we're, we're just seeing bodies everywhere. I mean, there, there were people who rose to the occasion and did the right thing. I did end up gathering sources who were brokers who, um, you know, they shared with me the prices they were charging. They, you know, they said, I'm really not trying to price gouge. My margin's pretty small. Uh, I detail Mike Bowen and, uh, you know, his company, Prestige Ameritech. They were trying to sell masks for less than a dollar a piece. You know, that would have been a good deal for the American people. So... There's a lot of that. I mean, but ultimately, this is the story of a lot of what you didn't see, uh, you know, the bad guys of the pandemic and people who saw an opportunity in the chaos and took the federal government and states for a ride and taxpayers got screwed. Yeah, exactly. Juanita Ramos was kind of an interesting character in your book, and uh, she was described as, uh, uh, well, yeah, I'll let you uh, tell us about Juanita. So Juanita Ramos was a, uh, a mystery that uh, dogged me for quite a while. So while I'm on this private jet and Robert Stewart Jr. is telling me that he doesn't have the masks, he's up against deadline. He's got to deliver the masks by the morning. He says, well, I think we'll be able to get an extension. They're going to understand because we have a connection on the White House Coronavirus Task Force. This is the task force run by Vice President Mike Pence at the time. And her name is Juanita Ramos. And I said, who is Juanita Ramos? And, and he's referencing her in letters that he's sending to Congress, to, um, you know, to the VA. And turns out he doesn't really know who she is. She, he was on a phone call with her once, but she's connected to these brokers that he's working with. And I'm, I'm thinking, wait a minute, if there's a connection to the White House, that's a major story, you know, and if, and if they're pulling strings and. I'd contacted the White House and the VA and FEMA, and no one knew who the hell Juanita Ramos was. So I had to report sort of that first story, just saying I don't know who she is. I searched lobbying records, campaign finance. I mean, I looked all over and uh, it became like something of a meme on Twitter. You know, who is Juanita Ramos? Where in the world is Juanita Ramos? Months go by and finally a reader stumbles upon one of my earlier stories and says, you know, I, I met a Juanita Ramos. And well, let me back up. So somewhere in there, while I'm trying to figure out who Juanita Ramos is after the story comes out, a friend of mine who's not a journalist, he works at REI. He sends me a text message, says Juanita Ramos is either a stripper in Atlanta or a Native American medicine woman. Yeah, that was it. And And you said, man, I should have listened to my friend earlier. Okay. So (laughs) yeah. And I just thought, oh, my friend's an idiot. Um, (laughs) So, so months, months later, random Reader reaches out, says, hey, I talked to Juanita Ramos. Here's her phone number. I cross-referenced the phone number. And sure enough, it leads me to this black and white photo of a Native American medicine woman. Uh, I couldn't believe it. I don't know how, know how he found her, but 
you know, I end up calling her and say, Hey, I've been looking for you. And she's like, what? And I said, do you have a connection to the Mike Pence uh, coronavirus task force? She says, Mike Pence, I don't even like Mike Pence. And uh, <laughs> I'm in, I'm down for the farmer, man. I, I work in medical marijuana. Uh, so anyway, I ended up having to meet with her and, you know, she's saved all these records. Um, she'd somehow been pulled into these broker chains and she was pretty small time. You know, she had some background in the marijuana business, which a lot of people in marijuana, because they're used to dealing outside of banks and uh, sort of in this gray area of the law, ended up becoming mask brokers. But she was pretty small time and somehow she got pulled into this whole thing. And uh, it became a really, you know, sort of fun chapter to explain how I wasted time looking for one of the uh, the, the toils of a, an investigative journalist. I just thought that was kind of an interesting one and how, how they ever got connected to the Pence uh, task force was an interesting one. There were a lot of other yeah. interesting things. Uh, uh, citrus farms in Michigan and dairy farms in Florida. And in, in, the, yeah. um, in your work as an investigative journalist, you comb through a lot of data and you look for those sort of red flags, don't you? I do. Yeah, that... You're referring to the Paycheck Protection Program. Yeah. There's actually some colleagues of mine at ProPublica who realized that uh, just millions of dollars were being sent to fake farms, people who had just, you know, created a non-entity, my favorite of which was called McDonald's, not burgers, but flowers. <laughs> uh, and and lenders, because of the way the Paycheck Protection Program was uh, sort of created, had no incentive to dig into this any further. They just issued the payments. Uh, and it's, and it's an open mystery where law enforcement and prosecutors are going to be chasing down hundreds of, you know, if not thousands of leads of people who defrauded that program because it was so loosely regulated. Incredible. Incredible. One of my favorite quotes, and I'm not uh, from your book and I, I can't remember if it came from game of Thrones, but chaos is a ladder. And, yeah. uh, you know, this, this unprecedented time, this, this global pandemic that uh, was, um, you know, affecting everyone really created a lot of opportunity for people to either um, strive for their best potential or, or reach for their lowest. And, and you did a, an amazing job highlighting some of the people that uh, found the ladder. So, David, uh, if someone, when someone's reading your book or after someone's reading your book, what do you hope they take away from, from uh, Pandemic Inc.? Yeah, well, well, first, I, you know, the the book includes a lot of humor. You know, it's not all despair. Uh, humanity is a lot of things, and we just we all endured a trauma. So I, I've tried to highlight uh, some of the more bizarre things that I came across. But at the end of the day, this book is really a blueprint of exactly what we shouldn't do when faced with such, such a crisis. We really leaned into some of our worst instincts. And that includes some of our toxic politics and, and greed and all of those things. And ideally, uh, you know, we'll be better prepared the next time. We'll have the national stockpile beefed up. Uh, we, we Hopefully, we'll have an administration that's ready to respond quickly so that we don't find ourselves uh, completely reliant on random companies forming out of nowhere. Exactly. Well, David McSwain, this has been a fantastic conversation. Where can people go to find out more about you and your work? Uh, well, yeah, I, I work for ProPublica, ProPublica.org. I have a website, DavidMcSwain.com. Uh, I'm on Twitter, at David McSwain. So 
pretty easy to find me and and there's links to uh, purchase the book at you know at, at all those places all right well thank you again for taking your time to be on the show this has been a lot of fun thanks for having me my guest today has been david mcswain author of pandemic inc which is now available wherever you buy books for more information to help you dive deeper into the subject be sure to check out the show notes for this episode or visit the Grit Nation website at gritnationpodcast.com. As always, thanks for listening. And until next time, this is Joe Cadwell reminding you to work safe, work smart, and stay union strong.